I'm Chance Dorland, and welcome to This Week Korea, an Anything Goes panel discussion program featuring the opinions of expats and Korean nationals on some of the biggest, yet perhaps underreported stories from the last week. On today's show, he's an American internet, radio, and television news and travel expert and hosts the internationally syndicated Asian News Weekly podcast, which provide news, commentary, and analysis on issues affecting the Asia-Pacific region. Mr. Steve Miller, great to have you on the program. Uh, pleasure to be here, Chance. And born in Brunei and also graduate from the University of Wisconsin, our next guest returned to the motherland in 2011 to serve his country in the Korean Army. After being discharged in 2013, he then started The Korean Foreigner, a blog that deals mostly with economic issues that pertain to Korea from a pro-free market perspective. Mr. John Lee, also welcome to the show. Thanks for the invite. And we have our born and bred Melbourne, Australia native. She's the co-host for the uncensored, not safe for work, Korea Underground podcast. After studying Korean studies and applied linguistics at the University of New South Wales, she graduated from Yonsei's Korean Language Institute, as well as furthering her study of Korean traditional music and culture. Miss Teresa Chen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And, of course, I'm an American radio journalist, former Peace Corps volunteer living here and working in Seoul. And I'm also the man behind Korea FM, an online radio station that features independent musicians and podcasters from the Korean Peninsula. This show is part of uh, the new wave of original content that we're trying to do for Korea FM. So you can find out more about this show as well as our other projects by visiting koreafm.net. So we're going to be covering three or four different topics today. Let's jump into the first one. We're talking about Saywall. This is something that obviously isn't new news, but um, after the sinking more than a year ago, this is something that every once in a while um, gets rehashed or something new comes out. And right now we kind of have both of those things. Earlier this week, police announced they were filing suit against the organizers of what they called a violent street rally that took place around the anniversary of the ferry sinking to seek 90 million won, which is about 79,000 U.S., for police vehicles, cameras, and other equipment that were either damaged or stolen during the protest on April 18th. And that also included 12 million won, or a little more than $10,500 for the medical treatment of 40 police officers said to have been wounded by quote, violent protesters. Now, of course, thousands of demonstrators staged rallies at Seoul Plaza in front of Seoul City Hall in April and May to mark that first anniversary of the sinking of the ferry, which claimed about 304 lives, mostly students on a field trip. Police have also issued or are in the process of issuing arrest warrants for leaders that organized those rallies. And in addition to this, a 47-member investigative team of human rights activists, social workers, doctors, authors, lawyers, and students has now found that Saywall victims were robbed of the right to mourn and to remember. And attempts to hold a fact-finding investigation have led, in their words, to monitoring, surveillance, and infringements of the freedom to assemble and demonstrate all that and more was released this week in a 220-page report titled Human Rights Investigation, a Record of the Saywell Tragedy in Human Rights. So, big stuff coming out, but this is obviously not a new news story. Um, first off, has anyone attended any of these events that we're talking about where they're seeking damages, where they're trying to arrest some of the um, people who organized this? Was anyone able to attend? Well, I've seen a few of the protests down near City Hall Plaza and so forth, and I haven't 
seeing it get violent. I was actually in the area on the anniversary weekend, so I saw the staging of the police out there, but uh, left before then. To me, it wasn't surprising that things got out of hand, given the way that the government's handled the investigation or lack thereof uh, since the sinking. Uh, I do live down in Poam, so it's a bit hard for me to witness anything, uh, you know, in person. But I have seen footage of um, just parents mourning the deaths of their children at Kwangwamun area, and they've just set up, you know, projector with the last messages from the children, and uh, basically just sitting there and crying and. You know, they, well, it didn't seem violent or, you know, that they wanted to create any havoc. Uh, I think they just wanted to pass a message on. Well, I myself have not been to the protests. I prefer not to go to any mass rallies, whether I agree or disagree with anyone there. But the thing that I found interesting was the word, the right, the right to mourn. I'm not sure if there is any legal... A statute that says that people have a right to mourn or the right to remember. Uh, I don't understand what kind of legal challenge that these lawyers are trying to make. Well, I agree with that, John. I, I think I think the report is 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 rubbish. I think there's a lot to be said about the way the government's treated the victims following that. But the whole right to remember, the right to mourn, right to recover. Um, I, I just don't get that, and and I've never heard of this particular Franciscan Education Center and their work with human rights. I mean, when we talk about human rights in, in the region, we usually talk about the UN. Uh, we talk about uh, North Korean Center, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, which I speak to on a great uh, frequency with. You know, this particular report, in my eyes, is really geared to try to make the government look bad. It seemed to be that case, yes. Not that they need any more help. Correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and I was just about to throw in, I think everything you guys just mentioned about this report is valid. Maybe I don't agree with the idea that people don't have these rights that we just, just mentioned, but you, you just brought up this idea, you know, make the government look bad. But, you know, there have been a lot of things that, you know, arguably have, have done a pretty good job of doing that. So my question here is that whether or not these damages took place, whether or not that organizers of these protests should be held responsible or be arrested as it looks like could be happening. Should the city, should the government just sort of bite the bullet on this one and say, yes, we lost equipment. We lost police cars. People, you know, just for lack of an argument were assaulted and we had to pay for that. They they've done so many things that haven't looked good so far. Is this really a good move? Even if it's a legitimate move to ask for these things to be paid for. Well, PR-wise, I don't see how anyone can win. This is just bad. This has got badness written all over it. That being said, if the government does not get money from, get their expenses paid for, then the government doesn't have money of its own. Taxpayers have to pay for this. So why do taxpayers have to pay for one fringe of the protesters' movements, actions, every time? I don't understand that. Well, I end to follow up on, on John's statement. You know, it's a catch-22. You know, as he said, this is a bad PR move. I mean, if, if the government pursues this line of action, it's going to look heavy-handed. It's going to disenfranchise people even more. But at the same time, 
if they don't do anything, if they don't go after those who the, either they arrested for causing the altercations, because they already know who those people are because they arrested them on scene that particular day, if they don't hold them financially responsible for, responsible for it, then during future protests, when there are damages incurred either by the police or other by buildings or other things that the protesters may do, then there will be a precedent set that, okay, you can have a protest and you won't be held accountable for the financial implications of it. Teresa, do you agree with that? Do you think that this, while not might not be a great PR move, it is perhaps necessary to send that message or does that even need to be sent? Do you think people wouldn't know that already? I do feel people need to feel a sense of responsibility for their actions in Korea. So um, I do agree that uh, you know both sides are a little at fault. At fault. Uh, so somebody does need to be held responsible for what's happened so far. But as John's mentioned, who are they going to get the money from? Uh, the the amount that you mentioned that they're asking for is probably too much for a few people to cover. So uh, that part of this whole case is. Um, slightly confusing i don't know how they're going to get through this yeah it's just it's it's a big lose for everyone involved and they need to sit down with everybody and find a better solution than just going after it financially and saying here's the price tag you guys pay for it i suppose that they have the protesters have some room to not have to pay for this because i think that their lawyers could make the argument that the police uh, should not have used the buses to block off and corner of all of these protests. At least were at fault from the beginning. So maybe that could be an argument for them to wiggle their way out of it. But yeah, it's a lose-lose for everyone. Moving on to our next topic, but just one last point I want to make. As it's obviously the case, you know, Sewol has been here for so long and it's not going to go away as a story anytime soon. They've just sort of announced that they're going to try to work with a, a Chinese firm to try to raise the Sewol. Um, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but they're, I believe, a preferred bidder. Looking forward, what do you think is the right move on this? Just try to avoid more PR bad moves such as this, working to get the say wall raised. Um, but is there anything good that can be done, do you think, in the future to try to alleviate more problems from happening? Or is it just going to be one thing after another because of how things have gone you know, in more than the last year? What is, I'm just wondering, what is the purpose of raising the say wall? What are they aiming to achieve from doing that? You know, I know they could do a further investigation into it, but, uh, you know, is that going to really improve things for future? Steve, maybe you can jump in on this because I know you've done a lot of reporting on this specific topic, but aside from the fact that there are still people who are missing um, and hopefully they would be able to find them by raising them, I think raising the say wall for a lot of people, at least in my mind specifically, having done some reporting as well, seems like perhaps not the final piece of the puzzle, but a very large piece of the puzzle that at this point is missing and I think would bring some closure to this this whole tragedy. Perhaps for some. Now, personally, I think it's a waste of money. We know that the boat was ill-fitted, overloaded, and the those at the helm conducted themselves in unprofessional manners, which led to the sinking. You know, I, I don't see a realistic benefit to raising it. And I think that while there are still unreclaimed bodies, I also think that the chances of 
finding those aboard are probably lower as well based on you know, not being able to keep the hull mm. uh, set. I think by this time they probably have left the vessel and you know, unfortunately they're going to be unrecovered. Um, I think a lot of the people really want the boat raised for the hope of trying to return, I think, the last nine bodies to the family members, which I think is an unre- uh, unreasonable request. Well, so this opens up that question. I, I'm actually kind of surprised that, uh, it, you know, I, I agree with the points you made, but I'm actually surprised by what you and Teresa just told me. John, what do you think? Do you think the Saywell should be raised? If it were raised, it would be only for emotional reasons. Economically, politically, everyone's already made up their minds as to what they're going to do, what they're going to say, whether they find the bodies or not, whether they don't find the bodies. It's just more political posturing, really. So I agree with the two of them, yes. This is a complete waste of time, political capital, money. I think that we should just lay the, bury the dead. Yeah, and I think just raising it would... Uh, for the families who still have, uh, who was, you know, who still haven't recovered, uh, you know, their children, uh, they may feel a sense of closure. Uh, but I think, on the other hand, the families who have, you know, who are trying to get over it, uh, they may relive, you know, all the horrors from the very beginning. Just you know, seeing it on the news. Uh, I'm sure they're actually going through it on a daily basis, actually. So. Uh, I think on a on a larger scale, it would be more considerate just to leave it as it is. Well, I think it would also, like like you said, Teresa, I think it would reopen old wounds. I mean, I think one of the reasons why the nation hasn't moved on as quickly as possibly it could have is because even in front of City Hall, you had the shrine there for a full year. And it was in everybody's face for a whole year about what happened. And it was expected that people pay their respects, expected that people, you know, keep that sentiment going for a year instead of starting the actual mourning process and moving on. Wow, this, I'm really, really glad that we decided to discuss this topic today on the first show. I guess maybe, you know, you live in a bubble and, and obviously there's been so much coverage of Sewol and some of it's been in English and some of it, and, and obviously the majority of it's been in Korean. Uh, but I really appreciate your guys' input on this because I, I feel the complete opposite way so it's been very interesting to 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 get your opinions on that yeah i i guess as i mentioned earlier i think it really does represent that final piece of the puzzle and whether or not it makes sense financially or if it's just a political move like you know in my mind i always thought raising the say wall was something to do so excellent opinions all around thank you guys so much well well, well, chance but but what benefit does raising it bring no and that's and that's why i agree with with your guys's points that you make because i I don't know that there are really that many benefits to be had, but it just seems like the right thing to do. And I know that that is not a great answer to put down on paper, but I just think it's the right thing to do to raise the say wall. Well, if it is the right thing to do, then who's going to pay for it? Because right now, you know, the you're going to put it back on the family whose assets are being seized by the government. You're going to have the government pay for it? No, these are all great questions, Steve. Yeah, no, I don't claim to have the answers. And and this is probably perhaps why maybe, as you guys just pointed out, it's not a great idea to to raise the say wall. But um, until you guys pointed it out, I I had never even considered the idea of not raising it. So interesting discussion. 
Uh, let's move on now to something that, uh, of course, also involves the government. There's been a, a lot of these types of stories in the last year or so. We're talking um, spying. We're talking Korea's major spy agency. Uh, yesterday, an employee of South Korea's spy agency was found dead in an apparent suicide with a handwritten will that alludes to the National Intelligence Service's controversial hacking program. It was a three-page uh, document that was found on the front passenger seat of a car, um, once again in that apparent suicide, that described the man's final thoughts on his life and also included matters of, quote, national interest. This just adds to the ongoing controversy surrounding where and how the National Intelligence Service used the hacking program it had bought from an Italian company back in 2012. And before the news of this employee's death, uh, the service had actually already announced that it will show classified usage records of its hacking programs to lawmakers in an emergency measure to try to back up its claims that the program was never used to monitor civilians. And, of course, this issue first came to national attention and also um, getting some attention around the world after the Italian maker of the program, Hacking Team, was actually hacked and 400 gigabytes of internal documents were posted on the Internet and then eventually WikiLeaks got involved and now we have this sort of current story. Um, it's kind of funny because Cacao Talk has gotten attached to this a lot, the idea of them being able to read your Cacao Talk messages, which is supposedly more secure than it was in the past because they've unveiled this sort of end-to-end um, -end encryption for Kakao so you can send a normal message and you can send a really, really secretive message that then uses this and supposedly it's uncrackable. And this is a story I reported in my capacity as an English radio journalist here in the past and asked people like, are you afraid of using Kakao? And most people said no, not at all. But some people said that they really thought that maybe someone was trying to read their messages. So what do we think about this? Is this really an issue that Koreans should be worried about? Is this just kind of getting blown out of proportion now that WikiLeaks is involved? What What are people feeling about this? Mm. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a first step at it. To me, this, to me, this is a big yawn of a story. And the reason why I say that is that every single government spies on its own people as well as governments abroad. We saw that with the Snowden links, you know, and, and the whole thing with the cacao, I, I find laughable because you know, it was a year or two ago, they passed the security legislation to allow the government to go into cacao and look for keywords, which is why everyone, quote unquote, everyone was leaving cacao to go use Telegram for a while because the messages were going to be on Korean servers. Now, to me, the uproar is going to be short-lived because, you know, you take a look at the 2012 election that put Park and Gay in Hayen uh, office where you had convictions of both the NIS and the Cyber Warfare Command come out and you know try to actually skew the election in favor of the Sanuary Party and people were all outraged but ultimately nothing happened so this is going to be the same thing people are going to be outraged that the government use these hacking programs whether or not to actually look at their own private messages but they're not going to do anything about it now, John, as uh, someone who in the intro described yourself a little bit as a conservative, uh, especially fiscally, what do you think about the role of the government? Um, as Steve just mentioned, like every government is looking at this or looking at other governments' communications. Um, does this worry you at all, or do you agree that this is something that everyone does and people shouldn't be worried about? Well, I didn't say people shouldn't be worried about it. I just, I just said that people are going to behave as they have in the past. 
I'm of two minds about this. Philosophically, um, one of my favorite authors is P.J. O'Rourke. He once said that giving more power to the government is like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. Nothing good's going to come out of it. But that being said, a spy agency, by definition, spies. And this is one of their roles. Now, as Steve said, people are not going to really change their behaviors all that much because it doesn't really impact their lives. They don't feel it. Maybe it does, but they just don't feel it. And so they're going to conduct themselves as they have so far. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I believe that this is more of an academic conversation. Politically, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. This is dead in the water. Yeah, personally, I've never really been too concerned with... Uh, you know, the information that I give out on Kakao Talk or, uh, you know, chat systems uh, of the like. Uh, I am very careful with things such as credit card information, uh, etc. But, you know, personally, I think this, you know, big hoo-ha about uh, the government spying on us, uh, yeah, is a bit of a yawn. Um, you know, and, and as far as it goes, I, I think... If you've got no guilty conscience, then what are you worried about? Well, see, that's something that has come up. I do a lot of man-on-the-street interviews, and, and some people have mentioned that. And I, you know, I, I don't influence what they tell me because that's obviously not the point of speaking to people on the street. But when someone brings up the what are you worried about, like if you're not doing anything, you have nothing to hide, this might be something that is a little bit like intrinsically part of me as an American where I grew up like, kind of as John mentioned, like no good can come of big government. I heard that all the time. And even though I, I politically disagree with that, there is still something in the back of my mind that like slightly agrees with it because I heard it so much as a child. I, I, I really hate it when people use that argument. Um, it's sort of like, you know, you know that whole idea of um, like, you don't know you have freedom until you lose it. Like, I, I don't know that I want people to be looking or have the ability to look at something I'm doing just because I have nothing to hide. It, it, Steve, do you think that's a, an okay argument to use? I personally think that the way the government is behaving these days, like like John said, and I love PJ as well. I think he's a great commentator. I, I think that the, what the government is doing in terms of intruding our lives, uh, we've now just come to accept it. And if you look at what the freedoms we've had in the past versus what we have today, those of us that remember it, you know, do realize what we lost. And some people have just become resigned to that this is the way it is and don't really relish the fact that you could have more freedoms. And you also have to, I guess, keep in mind that in terms of South Korea, you truly do not have free speech as what you would have in some other Western countries as well, uh, because of the national security law, because of defamation laws as well. Uh, so, you know, I don't like the fact that the government intrudes in this area, but I think it's very realistic that the people of South Korea, and for that matter, people, you know, citizens around the world, don't really have the power it takes to take that ability away from the government. Politicians are too entrenched and too powerful to do what they want to do. Uh, quick question. Mm -hmm. You said that we have fewer freedoms today than we did in the past. Now, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Could you perhaps explain why you think that we have fewer freedoms today? Well, I think if, uh, if you take a look at, say, like the United States, 
if you, if you go back to what you could say and do protests in March, say the 60s and 70s, I think that you would have more freedom to carry out those actions than if you did that today in the United States. I think the government would crack down, crack down harder today than had it, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Now, the reason why I'm not sure if I agree with that is because back in the 1670s, sure, we had fewer technologies back then. Uh, people didn't have the internet or the fax, but what they did have at the time was Hoover. J. J. Edgar, Hoover, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, you bring up a very good point. I mean, you know, J. Edgar was involved in a whole lot of things and kept files and everybody else. Um, and, you know, like I said, I mean, there there is that perception, but I I, I truly feel that if if you were out protesting you know 30 40 years ago you had quote unquote more freedoms than if you did today and the fbi hoover reference uh the whole idea of him keeping files and everyone that's notable because that was like oh wow they're doing this like now they keep track of so much and everything is stored somewhere that like they probably have a file on anything they want to and it's not even that notable and as steve mentioned people are kind of resigned to that it's it's especially you know i'm 29 and so you know i'm kind of becoming the old man but like when i speak to uh, younger brothers and sisters of friends in high school and the way they talk about privacy versus even just my slightly different opinion having grown up in a slightly different time like they're just completely resigned to it so uh, i i think that there's a case to be made on both sides uh, as as steve mentioned if you were to do certain things in the past would be easier than now but also with the invent of technology and just having access to information it does seem that certain freedoms are either just as strong or perhaps even stronger because you have access to just so much information. But I'm glad that overall everybody <laughs> said that this story is null and void and we don't have to worry about it. So I'll be interested to see what happens with this, especially because of this uh, you know, purported suicide um, involving a National Intelligence Service uh, employee. So we'll, we'll see where this goes in the coming weeks and whether or not this topic comes back up. Um, moving on to something else that just like Saywall is kind of a ever – evolving story and isn't really new news but just one thing happens and then something else happens and it comes back into the spotlight um this week the new york times published a piece titled lote world tower rises and leary koreans watch where they note that if the tower is completed as expected by the end of next year it'll be seoul's first super tall skyscraper and also the sixth tallest building in the entire world but people are gazing up at this giant soaring height of a tower with some fear since 2013 a string of accidents has plagued the 3.7 trillion won project which is about 3.3 billion dollars including three construction worker fatalities but as this story in the new york times goes on to point out they say that some of the construction problems such as water seepage or a door that came loose and fell on a visitor while obviously not good things to have happen have little to do with the actual overall design structure and the safety of that structure to do with the building. And it may have actually gone unreported by the media if it had happened at another building site, where unfortunately, you know, these types of stories in the last year or so since Saywall have seemed to have been really, really gotten out there in the media, um, seem to have been happening a little bit more often than in the past. And the New York Times goes on to say that the way the tower's construction accidents have really unsettled both the public and officials in the government speaks, quote, volumes about a society that is still deeply skeptical about the government's ability to ensure safety. 
Uh, a little bit of background, it took Lotte 15 years to win the building permit for this giant tower. And aside from those accidents, there's also been sinkholes in the area, water draining from the lake near the construction. But there have been some competing ideas of whether or not this tower has to do with that or some other construction projects. Um, and the reason I want to talk about this is because, once again, I do these man-on-the-street interviews, and I've done a couple about the Lotte Tower. And the Koreans that I talk to, as well as the foreigners that I've talked to, um, their reactions range from, I'm a little worried to, I will never step foot in the Lotte Tower because I'm afraid it's going to collapse and kill hundreds of people. Um, so I've been to the Lotte Tower. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, it was a great experience. I went to a, a museum exhibit there with my girlfriend. And I, I wasn't afraid it was going to collapse. But uh, I am a little bit of afraid that something might happen in the future with the history that we've had so far. And so what are your thoughts on this? It obviously probably could have been handled a little bit better, but uh, is this something that is perhaps being blown out of proportion or, you know, in your experience, do, do foreigners or Koreans kind of have a fear of this infamous building? Uh, I, I do think it is necessary to have articles on safety issues in Korea. Um, as I I do feel they, there is, they do have a long way to go uh, in terms of their safety policies. Uh, but I do think this is a little sensationalised with, you know, I think every construction site does have accidents and they do unfortunately suffer um, from fatal accidents sometimes. Uh, but I do feel this is a, a larger problem. Uh, all of these sort of, you know, doors falling off and so on that you've just mentioned. Uh, I think it's due to just, it's more pressure from above, you know, telling people to finish things by the deadline. Um, I think it's also uh, just from what I've heard from various people um, in different corporations, different workplaces, there's a lot of apathy in departments and I don't know, things just seem to get looked over. So I don't think it's so much, it is safety, but there are also a lot of other related issues to it. Well, I'm no engineer and I'm no safety expert uh, either. So I really can't say much about how they could have done this better. But what I do know is that people will always vote with their feet. Now, if you watch the news, they will always talk about broken windows, uh, leaking, uh, leaking ceilings. I believe the cinema that was supposed to be there uh, was shut down because of the leaks. And if you check out the neighbor blocks, people don't really have a lot of nice things to say about this tower. So if Lotte wants to make this building profitable, they're going to need to make a lot of PR moves. They're going to need to do a lot of, a lot of marketing. They're going to need to assure their customers, no matter what it takes, that their building is safe. Because if they don't, there's a good chance that this tower will be South Korea's version of the Ryugong Ta Hotel in North Korea, where there's a huge tower in the middle of the city that no one goes to. So it's... Lotte has everything at stake here. It needs to act to make the people perceive it to be safe. I don't know. Are that many people really worried about it? Well, I mean, once again, these are you know anecdotal street interviews that I've done, but I, I – 
do this every week. One of the things I do for the English radio station I work for is, um, you know, I, I check in with people on the street um, and ask them, you know, about certain topics. And I think two or three different times uh, I've done a report related to Lotte because of these ongoing accidents. I remember at one point the headline in uh, a newspaper, it might have been the Korea Times or Korean Herald, was like, city government gives Lotte final chance. And it was literally they told Lotte, like, if you have one more construction-related accident or construction-related death – you are shut down. We will shut down the entire tower. You will have lost all of this money, and it will just be done. Obviously, that didn't happen, and that may have been... Do you think that would really happen? Yeah, exactly. So obviously, that didn't happen, and even if, if something had occurred that would have crossed that line, they may have backed that up a bit because that would have been such a big deal. But the people I have spoken to about this, like I've run into people that are like, don't go into the tower. Like they told me, don't go to the tower. It's going to collapse. And that's why I wanted to talk about this. Like this is, this is something that I've, I've seen people afraid of this to the point that they would never even go near it. Now, obviously that might be playing into some fear of some news stories that have been reported. And as the times pointed out just this week, that maybe that was being overdone a bit, but that people have, have told me they're very afraid of this, of this whole situation. And and also, I guess, anecdotally, I have a friend who's an English teacher, and he has since moved on to a different uh, Hagwon private academy. But his private academy that he worked for that was in the Jamshil area where this tower is built next to um, ne- next to the indoor amusement park Lotte World, which is kind of like a Korean Disneyland with characters and stuff. I've been there. It's a fun time. His Hagwon is right next to this area, and a giant sinkhole opened up in front of the building – to the point that they had to stop class for a couple days. Parents pulled their kids out of the hogwan, and so they were getting ready to start firing the teachers, and my friend was going to have to start looking for another job. Luckily, they I guess they filled the sinkhole in, and everything was okay, and he was able to keep his job. But, I mean, there there is some crazy stuff going on in Jomshill. Well, I mean, I, I think John and Teresa both hit the nail on the head. I mean, we're, we're looking at over 20 years of massive failures of safety regarding building and other major issues here in South Korea with nothing being done. There's an issue like the say, well, people get outraged and then they forget about it and move on to something else until the next disaster comes along. And I think they're just reflecting on that. I mean, I think John's absolutely right. They're going to vote with their feet. If Lotte can't turn things around, then it's going to have this huge building in Jamshil that's going to go empty. Um, and, and that's just, they're going to have to figure out a way to correct that. And I don't see Korea doing anything to fix the safety issues either. And so why is that? Why don't you see Korea doing anything to fix these safety issues? After the last couple of years, a few accidents with the tower, um, obviously Seawall, um, there was a K-pop concert on the street where I think 10 or 20 people, I can't remember the exact figure, I apologize, but somewhere around that number died when they were standing on a grate that fell and they fell to their deaths um, inside of this like air shaft. Um, there was a couple that got off a bus and they walked off and literally fell straight, I think, a, a meter or two. They were fine. They weren't killed. But there's this video that's gone viral where it just shows these people walk out of a bus and they just, bam, they disappear. And everybody is like, oh, my God, where did they go? With all of these problems, perhaps coming to light more you know, because of the last year of a couple other big incidences, but with such – a history of this happening and then in the past you have collapses of department stores you have fires and subway stations that killed hundreds of people why would they not change anything 
Well, because they don't hold anyone truly responsible for it in any meaningful way. Oh. Let's go back to Chad's original question. Why doesn't Korea do anything about this? When we say Korea, what are we referring to? Are we referring to the Korean government? Are we referring to the individual businesses that own the buildings or the roads that collapsed? Because if that's the case, I believe that there's a lot of civil and criminal lawsuits that are pending in court or have already been carried out. Well, I personally feel like a lot of it's actually been covered up. Uh, you know, they people are not held personally accountable. Departments are not held accountable. Uh, you know, people protect each other. Someone makes a mistake and they do cover it up. Uh, I sincerely believe in that. So, um, you know, it, there there is a group culture here, and that includes looking after each other which goes both ways. So, um, yeah, personally, it's a, it's a lot of things to consider and fix. John, you bring up a good point. Like, who are we talking about when, you know, you say, or when I just now said, you know, are they going to do something about this? From your perspective, uh, who do you think needs to step up to change things? Is it, is it the government um, not only passing perhaps better um, rules for construction, more safety, but enforcing the rules that are already on the book? Or is it the legal system, um, you know, fast-tracking lawsuits um, when people are killed or when people are hurt? Is it um, the industry itself, you know, trying to up its game so that it doesn't have these types of things happen, so try to self-regulate? Where do you think that push needs to come from? Well, I'm of the opinion that tort law needs to be reformed. Now, when we, we have to be a bit more specific. When Americans think, hear the word, the phrase tort law reform, what they normally think of is immediately uh, uh, a limit to damages that, people, that businesses can pay. In Korea, we have the opposite problem. In Korea, the damages that businesses or anyone have to pay is capped. Or at least it's kept, is, or at least it's always minimized as much as possible. We need to try to maximize this, or perhaps not. Perhaps maximize is not the correct uh, word. Perhaps the correct word is to try to say, allow juries to set upper limits so that they can actually have this in courts. They can battle it out in court. For example, the department store that collapsed, the one that you mentioned in passing, occurred in 1995. The Sampung Tower, if I'm not mistaken. The, can anyone correct me on this if I'm mistaken? You're, you're spot on. Okay. Now, at the time, now this was back in the 1990s, so my information could be a bit hazy, but the government did offer compensation to, uh, to people. However, the relatives of the people who got compensation was minimal. I believe at the time it was less than $500,000 in total for all of the people who had died in that disaster. So if we look at that, considering the, the fines that people have to pay, if we look at the incentives, if there is not that much, if there is more incentive to break the law than there is to not break the law, then people are always going to break the law. So it's an incentive that we have to fix. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And then let's uh, let's just jump on what you just brought up, John. That's the perfect segue into our final segment. And I, I kind of apologize uh, to bring up this topic at all, but this is the first time we've done the show, and there was a new development, and so I wanted to talk about Nut Rage for just a few moments. Bear with me. Uh, the former Korean Air Executive Vice President Heather Cho, uh, who was involved in this big scandal um, and ongoing legal battle, has asked a New York court to dismiss a suit that was brought against her by a flight attendant so that 
she can stand trial in Korea instead of the United States. And one of the reasons um, that this is probably happening, and I believe it was mentioned, is that, um, as you just mentioned, John, it, there's a limit on damages in Korea. And um, if this suit went through in the United States, um, probably the amount of money awarded, if that was the end result, would be very different depending on which country it occurred in. Um, so obviously this is all about macadamia nuts. Um, they were served not in a bowl, I believe, instead of the bag. And then there was some bowing that took place and she shouted that the plane had to return to the terminal so that the the stewardess could, could get off. And We've all heard this story before, um, but what do you think about this specific request? Once again, we talked to the first story about PR. Should Heather Cho just cut her losses at this point and just try to hire really good lawyers and not worry about which country that it's in? Or is this a good move? Uh, is this a strategic move to ask for it to be done in Korea? And, and what do you think? Could this actually happen? Could they drop this lawsuit or is that not going to be the case at all? I certainly understand where she's coming from. She is making a smart decision. Now, as far as the Korean law is concerned, yes, the damages will be smaller. But that being said, I'm not sure if I'm really that upset about this because we have to take things into perspective. We have to make sure that the crime fits the punishment. Uh, if we look at what happened with the whole nutmeg scandal, what's the? if we look at it from an objective point of view, what really happened? The plane got delayed by, what, 15, 30 minutes? And everything else went on as usual. There was just one of her employees who had her feelings or his feelings hurt. But beyond that, what really happened? Do we, does someone actually need to go to jail for this? I'm not sure if I really agree with that. Now, a lot of people said that, oh, she's spoiled. She's the daughter of the, of the CEO. She's an heiress. Fine, they're all legitimate points to make. But I'm not sure if that really had that much to do with this case itself. I think a lot of things were added onto the case, which were unnecessary. Well, I, to a certain extent, I agree with John. I, I think her actions on the plane itself probably weren't criminal. I think where you start entering into some of the criminal behavior is the cover-up and intimidation tactics yes, that, that Korean Air exhibited here. Um, you know, but to what degree she's personally responsible responsible for those actions and whether or not she should have gone in jail gone to jail would be a different discussion um and i think she like i don't know if i would call it a wise or a good legal move to try and dismiss it in the united states to have it over here i think that's what you know the lawyer team would certainly advocate because they're trying to minimize any kind of loss for their clients i think it's going to also uh cause some more pr damage for both her and korean air but you know this is also someone who doesn't believe that she did anything wrong so uh, what else would you expect? Oh, I guess one of the things that you have to consider is having the trial in the States and getting all those 8,000 documents translated. Is there going to be anything lost in translation? And there's also the issue of cultural awareness. Um, is that judge going to be fair to both sides? Well, you, you say cultural awareness, the, the 8,000 documents thing, that came up um, in, the, in the description of why she was saying we shouldn't have this trial here. There's something like 8,000 documents that would have to be translated from Korean to English, a lot of extra work. Um, I'm sure that happens a lot with big you know, lawsuits that go on between interests of multiple nations, so I don't know if that is out of the 
question, but that's a decent point to bring up. But this whole idea of cultural um, awareness or, or the idea that the judge might not understand something, I mean, this happened in the United States, and this has to do with aviation law. I, I don't know if that's necessarily an issue. Well, I guess the reason why, part of the reason why the, the stewardess and steward is suing her is because of the way she treated them. Uh, you know, I think some of the, the reason why they want to go after her is because they feel, you know, belittled that her behavior towards them was demeaning and unfair. And a lot of that is cultural. Sure. I mean, you you can have demeaning um, actions that might, I don't know if, if um, are, you know, legitimized by, but might make sense compared with one culture versus another. But, I mean, the facts of the case are basically that she, the, the, the person in question had to bow. Um, I believe there might be some back and forth or whether or not there was actual, like, physical violence of, like, a slap or something. I can't remember, but I think that came up at one point. The plane was turned around, and the person was made to get off the plane. So, I mean, those actions alone seem to be devoid of culture. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it depends how you see it. In a Korean context, get out, you know, getting out of the classroom, being sent out may not be such a big deal. You know, if it's a child in the U.S., of course, you know, for me, growing up in Australia, you know, that's, that's extremely disrespectful to everyone. You know, the passengers, uh, the steward. But so, you know, th- this is what I'm trying to say. Uh, that could be part of the reason why she wants a child here. But, of course, I know there's a lot of uh, financial issues tied to, um, you know, probably tied to her decision as well, you know, whether she wants to do jail time, etc. So, um yeah, just a point. Yeah, well, hopefully, no matter where the trial takes place, it won't make too much news, and we can kind of just move on with this. Um, as you all know, this was covered relentlessly um, in Korea, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not so sure that that wasn't somewhat justified. I mean, this was a huge company, and it was a rather embarrassing thing to have happen and then be made public around the world. But it was it was giving quite a lot of coverage, and obviously we're talking about it now, so it would be nice to have the story just kind of go away. I guess this might be kind of a hard question to answer, but the, the final question of, uh, of the show and then of this topic, if, if Heather Cho was to lose, um, Let's just say it was in the United States because uh, in Korea there are limits on things. What do you think, like, a, a final amount of money on top of this would be? Like, is this going to be, like, a giant $20 million lawsuit or is this going to be, like, uh, maybe like a million or two? Um, where do you think that would end up? For Because, once again, like, maybe there was some embarrassment, but then, you know, the plane was told to turn back. Um, they delayed the flight. This messes with aviation laws. What do we think uh, an appropriate finding for this case would be? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, Pac, one of the other uh, flight attendants who is suing Cho, is seeking forty-four million U.S. dollars in damages, which I think yeah. is completely out in left <laughs> field in terms of compensation. You know, and, and a lot of these things when you're disrespected, like especially in an incident like this. You know, I honestly feel, you know, get your job back, maybe a year's worth of salary or, you know, uh, two years worth of salary and you can leave respectably from your job and, and get placed someplace else. I think a lot of times these types of quote unquote emotional damages are overly compensated in the United States. 
John, I assume you you would agree with that, right? Overly compensated these types of lawsuits in the U.S. Well, I'm not so sure I'd be willing to make that kind of a general blanket statement. But the reason why so many people ask for such these ridiculous sums is it's a bargaining chip. You know, someone says, oh, I want a million, and so, no, I'll give you a hundred, and no, all right, how about 900? And, you know, they're, they're going to go back and forth, and they're going to come up with a quote-unquote optimal sum. Now, whether or not they'll actually end up uh, with a sentencing or whether they'll settle out of court, that's really anyone's guess. But it will not be $44 million, that I can guarantee Absolutely. You know, and like you said, the, the whole purpose of the of the big ask is so you can find a number so everyone settles out of court to save on legal fees. Precisely. Yeah, yeah, good points. Good points all around. So we'll see what happens with uh, Heather Cho and the, the Nut Rage scandal. And uh, perhaps never, ever mention it again, ever, ever, ever again. On uh, on this show, I'd like to thank you guys all for being part of the first recording of uh, This Week Korea. I'm, of course, Chance Dorland. You can check out uh, more about Korea FM as well as this show and other original content we're doing at koreafm.net. I'd like to thank our guest for today. He's an American radio and television news and travel expert, also the man behind Asia News Weekly Podcasts, Steve Miller. Steve, thank you for joining us. And uh, why don't you talk about where people can find out more information about you? Oh, it's been my pleasure to be here this week. As Chance said, I'm the host of the Asia News Weekly Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Miller ANW and get more news from the region over at AsianNewsWeekly.net. And John, where can people find your blog? It has an interesting title. It's entitled The Korean Foreigner, which I assume is a take on being a Korean citizen, having served in the military, but also having a very close connection to other cultures. Well, other cultures. I I felt like a foreigner everywhere. So even though I'm in my own motherland, I still feel like a foreigner in a lot of ways. And so I called it The Korean Foreigner. And it can be found at thekoreanforeigner.blogspot.kr. And Teresa, thank you, of course, for joining us. Where can people find out more information about your uncensored Korea Underground podcast, which I, I listen to quite often. I really do enjoy. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it was great to be here. Thank you. Uh, you can find out more about us at www.korea-underground.com. We talk about all topics. I mean, Steve likes to keep it uh, you know, chill, relaxed. Uh, so we just chat about issues that may be of interest to expats and also uh, people overseas who are interested in Korean culture and Korean issues. And, yeah, that's about it. And it is uncensored. So, uh, yeah, Steve does have a bit of a potty mouth. Yeah, that's about it. Well, thank you guys once again for joining me. And uh, hopefully we'll have you uh, on the show sometime in the future. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Sometimes you want to someone trust you.